0: Good to be with you all. Uh, again, I'm Lisa, no longer or shorter version of that name, just Lisa. Uh, so, uh, before the announcements, we sang the refrain Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship his holy name. But what exactly are we saying when we sing that? Are we telling like a separate part of ourselves to worship the Lord? Is that a kind of poetic way of saying, Bless the Lord, O oh myself? Let's consider some other phrases where we use the word soul in at least our culture. There's the idea of finding a soulmate, whether or not you believe in that. Something is good for the soul is a common phrase. We say, I'm doing some soul searching. Uh, People sometimes say, I sold my soul. They're the life and soul of the party. Uh, We have a whole genre of cuisine called soul food, which has a rich history. All of these phrases in some way seem to refer to something deep, something core, something central. And as difficult to define as it is, often these uses, which seem to refer to some kind of other deeper part of ourself, come from, once again, if you were here last week, the ancient Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle. So last week I gave a a brief overview of like 2,400 years of philosophy. But the idea that Plato and Aristotle were more or less the originators of separating out the physical from the quote-unquote spiritual. And by spiritual, they meant anything immaterial. So that includes thoughts and ideas and all of that. So often the way that we would refer to heart and mind represents that kind of split and dualism. But so too, and perhaps even more so, does our concept of the soul. Because Plato's idea, and Plato came first, Plato's idea of the soul is the immortal, intangible essence of a person, which is then essentially trapped in a body. And Aristotle, who came after Plato and was his student, then kind of took that even further or kind of expanded even more the idea that the soul and rational thought are the higher elements of a person. They're the true essence of a person. And we can see a pretty clear through line to how even now this has fundamentally shaped something that is not only a common but really a central concept in Christianity, that the soul is the eternal part of us that lives beyond the body. And again, you can see pretty easily then why that would make um, anything in that realm more important and separate from anything physical, that it would be seen as better (laughs) than the physical. So 23 or 2400 years later, after Plato, this concept, this mentality, and its many implications remains pervasive in our Western cultures and in our theology. And I'm not going to unpack that further, except that to say, and yet, our Bible is primarily written by, originally to, and about Jewish people, not the ancient Greeks. The Old Testament all takes place centuries and in cultures completely apart from the Greeks. And while the New Testament authors and the readers in the Roman Empire did come a few hundred years after Plato and Aristotle, so they would have been significantly shaped by these ideals and the societal structures that came from them. But even with that, the majority of the New Testament writers and the majority of the audience intended in the letters and the gospels and so forth, not all, but the majority, not to mention Jesus himself and most of his disciples, were deeply Jewish. And so it's important for us to ask, what then did soul mean to the ancient Jews before Plato ever came along? What did it mean to Jesus and his Jewish disciples and authors who kind of had both worlds presented to them? So this morning we come to week three of a three-week mini-series looking at the key words of the Shema, which is the central prayer which was to be repeated multiple times a day in the tradition of Judaism and is upheld as central in both Judaism and Christianity by Jesus. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So in the last two weeks, we have come to deeper understanding of the rich and holistic meanings of the ancient Hebrew words translated here as hear and love and heart and how the active and comprehensive holistic implications of these words in Hebrew inform what it means or how we are to love God and how we are to love our neighbor. Which brings us now to the word translated as soul. And the Hebrew word here is nefesh. And to be clear, nefesh did not mean an ethereal, disembodied, deeper part of yourself in the way that it often gets referred to today. Now the Old Testament biblical authors do have some concept of existing after death and waiting for resurrection, but they very rarely talk about it. It is not a central concept. And when they do talk about that, they don't use the word nefesh. Rather, nefesh was a reference to your entire life, your whole being. So to love God and others with your whole nefesh is another way of saying love God with all of you. Now, some of you are thinking, didn't you just say this last week? That heart was a way of saying love God with all of you? First off, kudos for remembering. Uh, Secondly, yes. Yes. Because to say love God with all your heart and with all your soul isn't so much intended to be two different instructions, like two different parts of you. It's more like expanding and nuancing the same idea. It's almost more like synonyms to fully encompass the idea to love God with all of who you are. So if heart, or in Hebrew, lev, refers to our whole internal being, right? Our feelings, our choices, our thoughts, Soul or nefesh, refers even more broadly to our whole being, including now our physical being. So let me break this down with a few examples of nefesh throughout Old Testament. So the most basic meaning of nefesh is throat. This is kind of like how we'll talk about emotions with the word heart, but we know that a heart is literally the organ pumping blood through our bodies. So Hebrews referred to their life as their throat, because the food and the drink that sustains your life goes through your throat. It's very logical. So when the Israelites are wandering in the de- wilderness, for example, and they're hungry and thirsty, in Numbers 11:6, they say to God, we missed the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nefesh has dried up. They're thirsty, their throat's dry. Since your whole life and body also depend on what goes in and out of your throat, or really down, hopefully, Uh, Nefesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. So in Genesis 46, 15, it says there were 33 nefesh in Jacob's family, just 33 people. In the creation account, both humans and animals are called a living nefesh. And in Leviticus, if the life breath has left a human or an animal, the nefesh remains. It does not float away or disappear. Rather, that person or animal is called a dead nephish or a corpse. And I think it's worth just pausing to say that this definition of soul, like Plato took a pretty big 180. I'm not sure that he was responding to ancient Jews, but it's very different. Rather than something separate from and superior to a body, it almost feels ironic that in Hebrew, a nephesh is a body, or can refer to one's body. It's really your whole being. So in the Bible, we don't have a nefesh, we are a nefesh. We are a living, breathing, physical, holistic being. So nefesh is our very life, our embodied self. This is why nefesh is also frequently translated with personal pronouns like I or me or you or he or she. That often is a nefesh because it's just a person. <laughs> And for a last example, in Song of Songs, we get lots of verses where the woman's nefesh repeatedly cries out for her lover. And some of those are translated in English as soul, but clearly that is not just a disembodied, purely emotional, or even a spiritual longing, while that is part of it. But in one verse she says, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my nefesh loves. As she's in bed looking for the one her soul loves, That is not a platonic view of a disembodied part of herself. That is an integrated embodied longing. And all of that was captured in a nefesh. So it means, quite simply, our entire being. To love God with all your nefesh means to devote your whole physical human existence to your creator. The one who granted us these amazing bodies and lives in the first place. And I think this is hard for some of us to really fully embrace or even to grasp what the implications of this are. There's a Christian trauma and embodiment therapist and researcher, Dr. Hillary McBride, who says, when she tells people you are your body, she's often met with pushback, sometimes fear, even disgust. And yet, we can only live this life in our bodies. They are part of our lives. It's part of who we are. It is who we are. It's how we live and love. As Dr. McBride said, you are your body. There is no shining, sensing, loving, longing, relating, remembering, developing self that is not a body. Our bodies are the place of our experience of being human. Or if we put this in the context of the Shema, Our bodies are where we experience the love of God, and they are where and how we love others in return. So I'll give a very small example of this integrated existence uh, and how this plays out. So just earlier this week, uh, I was talking with a therapist about some stress I had, about things that felt kind of uncertain in life, and I just wanted things to be established. Um, But they couldn't be, there's just things that are open-ended right now. And she asked how that shows up for me. Just a broad general question, but I immediately noticed that my jaw had tightened and clenched as I was talking about this, which is something I do so much that I have to wear a night guard. Because as my dentist put it, uh, nice people like you take out your anger and your stress on your teeth (laughs) instead of on other people. (laughs) It's a nice idea. The therapist then explained how our body and our brain are constantly sending signals to each other. So this is my paraphrase, but essentially, my tight jaw was sending a signal to my brain that things are not okay, which then my thoughts and my emotions pick up the signal, so to speak. I think of it almost like a radio. And my brain sends that tension back into the rest of my body, and it becomes this cycle of stress and tension. Our body and our minds and our thoughts, they're all talking to each other all the time. And at the risk of stating the obvious, I find it a lot harder to be gracious or patient or loving when I am tense or stressed or angry. But we can initiate a calming or loving cycle within ourselves, too. So in this small example, when I noticed my jaw tensing, by simply physically releasing, even maybe extending some extra care, like rubbing out the tension that I had Created. That's also telling my brain, I'm okay. We're okay. My body, my thoughts, my emotions could all return to a calmer, more present state. And in this simple way, I was extending God's love to myself, which let's not forget that Jesus' command says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And not to mention the obvious yet again, that in that calmer, more open state, I find it a lot easier to be responsive to God's gentle presence, to pay attention. I find it a lot easier to extend compassion and grace to other people when I am in a calm and open and gracious state. I think when we stop and think about these kind of simple examples, we realize that we see this show up all the time, right? We know this integration to be true. Because consider how it feels in your own body, how it feels to be stressed. Most people have a consistent place that they physically carry stress in their body, in their neck, in their shoulders, in their back, in their jaw. Or how it feels when you get nervous or afraid. Normally, you know you're nervous or afraid because something's happening in your body. Or on the positive side, how it feels to be excited, how it feels to be filled with anticipation about something good. Or consider how when something is indescribable, with beauty or wonder, we say it takes our breath away. Not even gonna get into the power of breathing. (laughs) something we do all the time without thinking, but which can totally reset our nervous system. So these are small examples of deep and extensive findings about the interconnectedness of our physical, our mental, our emotional and spiritual state. And that's just within ourselves. I haven't even gotten into the societal layers The pervasive ways that our bodies, varying in age, in shape, in ability, in size, gender, color, all of these things shape how we experience the world and how we see and treat one another. So clearly what we experience in all of these parts of ourselves are interconnected. We are holistic beings as much as sometimes we talk about these separate compartments. We know they're not actually separate. And all of that, our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, all of that affects our ability to notice and love God and our ability to really see and love our neighbors. Now you'd think, okay, now we've covered it all. But we still have another phrase in the Shema. We still have, love the Lord your God with all your strength. Which actually is quite different in nature than the words for heart and soul. It's almost like a way of supercharging the whole verse. So let me explain. The word translated in the Shema as strength is me'od, and it's actually an adverb most of the time. So it typically pairs with another word to enhance or clarify its meaning. And the most common meaning of me'od is very. So in Genesis 1, for example, when God looks at his creation each day and calls it good, but then on the last day of creation, when he creates Adam and Eve, it says he calls it very good, or me'od good. Now there are about 300 instances of this word, and you can imagine why, because it mostly shows up as very this, or really that. So in the Shema, when it gets translated as strength, This is one of the only times that it's translated that way. It's one of the only times that that happens. And it doesn't refer to physical strength. There is another distinct Hebrew word for that. But given that ma'ot is typically an adverb, it doesn't really work that well to translate in English, love God with all of your very. Or (laughs) perhaps the closest we can get, the way they put it on Bible Project is love God with all your muchness, which I really like, but it's still not good English. But now that we all know that heart and soul are these overlapping ways of capturing the idea to love God with all your heart, this isn't that surprising. That Mayod is not listening, listing another component of your life to love yourself or to love God or your neighbor with. It's a way of really driving home the point in case you had any doubt, in case there was any corner of your life that you thought wasn't involved. It's emphasizing the everythingness of this command. So love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your everything, with all your muchness. It reminds me of like when you know, you get a pep talk of some sort and they say, I want you to go out there and give 110%. Right? We know that logically that doesn't make sense. You cannot have more than 100%. That's the definition of 100%. But we know what that means right it's you're extra you're all you're everything or they'll just say give it everything you've got i think that is the spirit of mayode to love god with all your heart with all your soul to love with 110% to love with everything you've got but because of the interesting nature of this word there is one more layer or nuance that we can see in this idea as we look at different translations throughout time Because since it's usually an adverb, and it's rarely used in the way that it is in the Shema, and because it's so wide and expansive, right, very, really can mean so many things, ancient Jewish scholars have interpreted it and nuanced it in a lot of ways. So there came a point historically when ancient Jewish scholars needed to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And when they did so, they translated meod into the Greek word dunamis, which then gets translated in English as power or strength. So we have this chain of translations, and that's what we mostly see now. But if you look at other translations, and most interestingly, the ancient Aramaic translation, which interestingly is what they also think Jesus and his followers spoke, you'll see that they translated ma'od there as wealth. So now we might be tempted to ask, well, okay, which one is it? Is it power, is it strength, or is it wealth? But which one is it is the wrong question. It's not about which one word is right. No one word can capture the fullness of me'od. Instead, it's another reminder, another invitation to hold the muchness, the fullness of what it means to love God and love others. So the variety of words that can be translated here only serve to re-emphasize and expand that point for us, that there's an invitation, a command, actually, to love God and others with all of our power, with all of our strength, with all of our wealth. And in the spirit of the Hebrew language that we've seen is so comprehensive and holistic, as we've seen the last three weeks, it's pretty clear that the answer to which one is it, to me, is D, all of the above. And in some ways, I feel like that sums up the whole Shema, right, love God with all of the above. (laughs) Consider again the words of the last three weeks of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, meaning don't just listen or even agree with these words, but actually respond and live them out. Live out and respond that the Lord our God is one, and you are to love the Lord your God. Love in the same unconditional, active way that God has loved you. Receive and respond to that love of God by extending it and passing it on to others in the same way and to those that God loves, especially those in need. Then it says, love with all your heart or your love, which is your thoughts, your affections and emotions, your choices. Love with all your soul or your nefesh, which is your whole, physical, integrated being, your entire human existence. And love with all your strength or your me'od, which is your muchness, it's everything, it's 110%. Whatever power you have, whatever strength you have, whatever wealth you have. This is the fundamental command that Moses says is so important. Repeat it multiple times every single day. Put physical reminders in your home and on your garments so that it is central to your home, your community, your life. This is the command that is supposed to ground and drive the people of God. And Jesus not only upholds this as the greatest commandment for us as his followers as well, but he reiterates what Moses has said throughout Deuteronomy, throughout the whole Torah, which is that to love God is to love others in the same way. Jesus has that response when he's asked in some form or another, what's the greatest response, greatest commandment? He says this in all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there's a unique and, I think, really wonderful aspect of Luke's telling where we get this follow-up question from the religious leader who says, and who is my neighbor? He's kind of trying to get out of it, actually, but Jesus isn't having that. So Jesus' response to that question is one of the most famous parables illustrating what exactly it looks like to live out these words in action. So we'll pick up the story at that point. In Luke 10, verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, there is a lot that can be unpacked in this parable. But for the context of today, I want to focus on what the Samaritan did. The exemplar that Jesus offers as the one who loved his neighbor with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. Because first, we see heart in action. It says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. And there's two things there, actually, because first, he saw him. Consider how easy it is for us to not see those on the margins. It's almost by definition of being on the margin. They're not seen. Consider how easy it is to look the other way when a person in need is literally right in front of us. I've heard various testimonies from people on the streets or who have had to beg, who have said that in addition to what you might imagine are the obvious difficulties of being unhoused and needing to be in that position, that there is a profound isolation and a dehumanizing effect because people will not acknowledge that they exist. They will make an effort to avoid their existence, to avoid eye contact. And this is essentially what both the priest and the Levite do. They cross to the other side of the street to avoid this man. So the Samaritan saw him. That's not a trivial phrase. It's the first step. And when he did, he took pity. So his emotions and his affections were moved toward compassion and pity. So he saw a need. He saw a person in need and was moved by it. And then we see his soul, or really more accurately, his nefesh in action. It says he went to him and bandaged his wounds, putting, and this was putting his own nefesh at risk. Now, on a basic level, it was risky because there were clearly violent robbers around who could have just as easily attacked him when he came out into view. And on a cultural level, there was significant tension and hostility in this region between the Samaritans and the Jews. So if someone saw this interaction, they might misinterpret it or aggressively intervene or question and attack the Samaritan later. What were you doing? And sadly, we know that this is true because we still have too many instances of this there are too many ways that we see this dynamic of fear and anger and violence toward the other between racial and cultural groups that continues today. Whether it's more stories than I could name of racialized violence against people of color here in the US that's constantly bombarding our news feeds, or even the ongoing violence in Israel and Palestine rooted in both a religious and a cultural hostility, not unlike the Jews and Samaritans. We know too well that when there's hostility between cultural groups to cross that divide is physically risky. And the Samaritan bandaged his wounds, which might not seem that crazy to us, but in their cultural and religious context, this is incredibly significant. Blood was something you do not go near. It makes you unclean. This is probably why the priest and the Levite crossed by. They couldn't be near blood. And so the Samaritan touching and bandaging wounds is another way that he steps out and boldly loves with his whole nefesh, person to person. And then we see his strength, or again, more accurately, his me'od come into action. Because it says he poured on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. Consider all those resources, right? Oil and wine, his donkey, money for an inn. Not to mention, that's a lot of time. It's not the time just to stop and ask, are you okay? Or even to drop him off somewhere. But he took the time to care for his wounds, to walk to an inn. And we know that he stayed at the inn for a while because it says, the next day he talked to an innkeeper, implying he spent the whole day there. And then he gives two denarii, which is two whole days wages. Consider a whole day of wages today. This is not just the spare two bucks you have in your pocket. And as if that all weren't enough, he promises the innkeeper that he'll cover any additional expense, days worth of food and care and shelter. As we conclude this morning in this series, I think it's amazing how in just these five verses, Jesus expertly offers this parable To not only communicate a powerful truth about who is our neighbor, but also to powerfully and comprehensively paint a picture of what it means to love with all of our lev, with all of our nephesh, with all of our meod. And Jesus concludes so simply go and do likewise. Friends, let us shema these words. Love your neighbor as God has loved you. Respond to the Lord and love actively with all of your internal world, with your whole physical being, with the muchness of everything you have and everything you are. Hear, O people of God, let us go and do likewise.